Good morning. What a wonderful theme pastors Scott and Melissa Maxwell Dougherty have uh, selected for this semester's chapel series as we look at those things in life that sustain us, that provide meaning in the search to grow closer to God and closer to each other. When uh, Pastor Melissa asked if I would speak this fall, I must admit that the first emotion I felt was fear. Um, The last time I spoke in chapel was 1996. Then I remembered that I like to encourage my students to challenge themselves and uh, to attempt new opportunities, and I thought that I would model that behavior today by sharing some thoughts with you. One of the things in my life that sustains me is seeking community, or what Barbara Brown Taylor in her wonderful book, An Altar in the World, calls the practice of encountering others. Some of the ideas that I would like to share with you today are based on Taylor's book. Taylor claims that all of the world's great religions have required communities of people to make them work. Even monks who took vows to live alone knew that they needed to come together from time to time for communion. Whether they are called congregations, covens, umas, or churches, communities are the places where the teachings of the religion are tested and examined. We at this university call ourselves a a diverse scholarly community, and it occurs to me that our mission is similar in some ways to the church leaders who knew they needed to engage in reasoned dialogue with others for greater understanding and to achieve truth. There is a wholeness that comes from community. Artists and athletes speak of this as, as something called flow. It's that moment when there is a loss of self, when one moves by instinct, rather than by thought, and when one feels completely connected to the mission of the group. At my church, I sing in a 70-member choir, and for me, those moments of community come through music. When I'm singing with others a song that might have particular meaning for me, at those times, I sense a loss of self and instead feel a greater connection to others and to God. But when thinking about spiritual communities, Taylor tells us there is an even more important reason for seeking community, and that is to save ourselves from believing in our own self-sufficiency. Being self-absorbed, selfish, thinking that we don't need others, it's one of the greatest impediments to community, to living a life of meaning and drawing ourselves closer to God. And yet selfishness comes so easily. I'm very good at being self-absorbed. Uh, I often joke with my students that my favorite subject in class is myself. Uh, But living in community means quite simply the practice of loving your neighbor as yourself. To love the neighbor, we must see the neighbor, not as someone we need to change or enlighten or enroll or save or convince, but rather see the neighbor where they are as someone who can spring us from our own selfishness. This past week, I had a student who was late handing in a couple of assignments. I immediately assigned to her a stereotype, irresponsible, doesn't care about her education, um, really isn't interested. This week, she stopped by my office to explain why she had been handing things in late. She'd been facing tremendous, almost overwhelming personal struggles. I was beginning to write her off as irresponsible, as apathetic. I didn't see her. I'm so grateful that she shared her story with me so that I had the opportunity to see her, 
rather than thinking selfishly about how her late assignments were going to inconvenience me. We achieve community when we feel with others. This requires the expression of genuine empathy. Rather than expressing sympathy, feeling sorry for someone, empathy requires work. There's a wonderful quote that I like, and it, I, I actually don't know the, uh, the source, but I've remembered it for many years, and that is, when we feel with others, we dance to the rhythm of God. My daughter Grace is six years old. Last week, as we were driving to school, almost every day, she kept talking to me about a boy named Knoth, and she's missing her two front teeth, so it usually would come out, Knoth. And, uh, you know, Knoth is bothering me. Knoth is really mean. Knoth is preventing me from doing my work, you know. Knoth is terrible. I finally decided to approach the teacher. I went up to her. I said, listen, I really don't want to be one of these kinds of parents. I'm really sorry, but... You know, Grace keeps talking about Kanoth. He's really bothering her. She, she says she can't do her work. The teacher looked at me puzzled. Kanoth? Yes, Kanoth. Um, I don't have any students uh, named Kanoth. I, I said, well, she, he, she said he sits right next to her. Do you mean Kenneth? <laughs> At that point, I saw the pencil box with the name Kenneth on it. How difficult it is sometimes to see people. We don't even learn their names, but look at them only in terms of how they affect our wants and our needs. You'll be happy to know that Grace and Kenneth are now friends. <laughs> One of the greatest impediments to loving the neighbor and therefore seeing the neighbor is fear. And those that we fear most are those who are different from us, the stranger. In my communication theories course, we spend some time studying literature from social psychology about the cognitive basis underlying social stereotypes. Our brains go on autopilot. We develop schema, which sometimes develop into stereotypes when inappropriately applied. Now, as a university professor, I like to think of myself as enlightened and free of these social stereotypes. And yet, I know that is not the case. This was made particularly real to me when I traveled from LAX to JFK Airport in New York just a few weeks after 9-11. Now, I don't like to fly anyway. Uh, I have an irrational fear of flying. I recognize this. I could probably benefit from modern pharmacology in this regard. <laughs> but immediately after 9-11, this fear really, really gripped me. Overnight, the nature of air travel had changed. And I was, as I was, I was waiting in line to check my baggage with my family to come home from New York, I couldn't help obsessing that this was the same flight, the same airline as one of the planes that had crashed so tragically in 9-11. As I stood there, I noticed two men of Middle Eastern descent standing right in front of me. I started murmuring to myself and then to my husband, I really hope those guys are not on our flight. I really hope those guys are not on our flight. I hope they're not going to be on our airplane. What if something happens? What if, you know, they're terrorists? Oh, oh, they are on our flight. Oh, great. What am I going to do? My husband was extremely annoyed by the murmuring under my breath, being a much more evolved person than I. A few minutes later, he took our young son to the restroom. When he returned, he said, hey, Sharon, your terrorists are in the bathroom speaking Spanish. <laughs> okay. 
Fear precludes us from seeing the neighbor and loving the neighbor, particularly when the neighbor is a stranger. And yet, according to Jonathan Sachs, the Hebrew Bible commands us to love the stranger no fewer than 36 times. Sometimes fear is the basis for forming community. Nothing builds community faster than having a common foe, a common enemy. Whether it's in discussions about an Islamic community center near Ground Zero, debates on gay marriage, or policies that make criminal the presence of undocumented workers in Arizona. Having someone to oppose because of fear builds oppositional communities. These kinds of communities can inhibit us from loving the neighbor and therefore seeing the neighbor. Jesus knew how to see people. Whether it was Samaritan lepers, Roman centurions, marginalized women, hostile Judeans, his own disciples, little children, prostitutes, powerful men, slaves and rulers, Jesus saw people. Who is my neighbor? What is significant is that for Jesus, the concept of the neighbor was not confined to those who looked, acted, or thought like he. We need community, for community saves us from the belief in our own self-sufficiency. To experience community, we must love the neighbor as the self. Loving the neighbor means seeing the neighbor. George Fox said, walk joyfully on the earth and respond to that of God in every human being. When we respond to that of God in every human being and see the neighbor, we see the face of God. <laughs>